Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. We're going to continue on in our series, Redemption Through History. But before we do, I have a statement I want you guys to repeat after me. And I think this statement is going to be really important for us as we progress through the story today. And what's going to happen is is you're going to find yourself saying it, but potentially not really believing it. And so I want to walk through that a little bit today. I want to explore some of it. And again, I think it's going to help us to understand the story a little bit better. So here's a statement. I want you to repeat this after me. God is in charge of everything. So this is one of the foundational truth, truths that we teach our kids. And so surely that means it can apply to us as well. And so that's the goal today. God is in charge of everything. But the challenge is going to be, as I progress through my sermon today, is will you be able to say it the entire time? So that will be the challenge. But again, the truth is God is in charge of everything. So last week we talked a little bit about how God, despite all the circumstances between the nation of Israel being in bondage at the time, and even Moses, who after having killed somebody, decided to run away from Egypt, away from his people, and was basically living in exile. And so the truth becomes, and repeat it after me, God is in charge of everything. It's all right, you'll get, you'll get it figured out at some point. So, so we're just going to get started. So to kind of paint the picture a little bit of where we're at, Like I said, Moses has ran. He's gone. But God has called him back to his people. Now, his people have been under a tyrannical rule from the Pharaoh of Egypt at the time for about 400 years. Now, he allows them to escape or allows them to exodus, thus the book, uh, by creating these things called plagues. Now, the Hebrew word plagues really just kind of implies more of a uh, to strike or to wound Um, But what's interesting is that God really has to attack and wound Egypt because, again, God's trying to get the Israelites out of there right now. But these aren't just a few hundred people that have kind of, you know, are sitting in Egypt at the time. So if you think back to Genesis 50, when when Joseph first came into Egypt, him and his family had about 60 people. Well, 400 years later, and Daniel mentioned this last week in regards to that God brought them to Egypt to flourish. Well, at this point, they've gone from 60 to about 1.5 to 2 million people. So needless to say, they done flourished. Um, But we're at this point where God is trying to get this 2 million people out of country. And, And the issue is this country is using them as slave labor. That's a lot of help to be leaving at the time. So Pharaoh obviously isn't going to give them up willingly. So thus, the plagues. But there's ten plagues. And here's the question for you. Again, just to kind of think about a little bit as we go through it. Why? Let's just think realistically here. If you can try and think back to maybe some past Sunday school class or something like that. Why ten? And why go through all that trouble to discomfort to infect, to hurt, to really just go through all of those things when, if we just speak candidly for a second, 
Like, why didn't he just, I don't know, kill off all the Egyptians? I mean, that would free the Israelites, wouldn't it? At that point, once everybody dropped, they looked around, figured out what was going on, were able to walk out of the country. Like that, I feel like that would have saved a little bit of time. Or even, okay, maybe not the entire country of Egypt, but what about just Pharaoh? Why not just wipe out this tyrannical ruler or even just some of his higher-ups, some of those leaders, just off them and allow the Israelites to just walk free at that point, to waltz out of the country? So the question becomes why? And I think this is always a good question to ask whenever you're reading something in the Bible, but I think especially in this. And so let me propose three things for you, and because we're good Baptists, they're all going to start with the same word. Um, Three reasons for why the plagues and why the plagues in the way that they were. The three things are these. One, to reveal the power of God, Yahweh, God over God's. The second is to reveal the idolatry in the hearts of his own people, the Israelites. And third is to reveal the stubbornness of Pharaoh. So the first of these to reveal the power of Yahweh, of God over God's. Um, This is something that's going to be kind of an undertone and something that's still really important when it comes to, again, why the plagues. So if we understand Egyptian history at the time, they are what we would call polytheistic. So poly meaning many and theist or theism meaning gods. So polytheism is many gods. This is a group that would have had absolute pride in the fact that they had a god for every aspect of their life and probably multiple gods for those aspects. So just an example, say you were a farmer in ancient Egypt and you were going through a drought, you needed rain. Well, at that point, you would probably worship or pray to the god Happy. Yes, Happy, H-A-P-I, Happy. Happy was the Egyptian god who was known as the water bearer and was also the god of the Nile. And so at that point, you would pray, you would do whatever you could for Happy, the god of the Nile, to bring you water. Or maybe your livestock, all your cattle, they weren't reproducing the way, they, the way they needed to. They weren't growing big enough. They weren't able to sustain life so that you could sustain life. You might pray to the god Hathor. No, not a Game of Thrones character. Hathor, the Egyptian god of livestock. Or maybe you were sick. Well, the goddess Isis was the goddess of medicine and healing. Uh, or you had the god Ra, who was the great sun god of Egypt at the time and really needed for most aspects of Egyptian living. So the idea was that every aspect of life, every area that you might have needed a God, we had a God for that, to fit whatever your need was. But when we dig into the plagues a little bit, we realize that each plague was specifically suited to attack some of the biggest gods of the time. And so I think that, again, shows and reveals the power of big God, Yahweh, over all these little g gods of Egypt. So just a quick run through real quick. The first plague was found in Exodus 7. We're going to move real quick, so if you want to try and flip through your can, but we're going to be flying. First plague's found in Exodus 7. It reveals God's power over that prominent God, God happy, by turning the Nile and all of the water of that area into blood, showing again the power of Yahweh over the God happy. The second plague in Exodus 8 reveals God's power and dominance over the goddess Heket, who is commonly depicted with the head of a frog and was the goddess of water and renewal. And if you can look in Exodus 8, 
The second plague was literally just an infestation of frogs. So obviously poking at Heket a little bit. The third were lice or gnats from the dust. And I've never been to Egypt, but I'm guessing there's probably quite a bit of dust in the desert. And so uh, the third plague was where lice or gnats all came from the dust of the earth. And this was a jab at the god Geb, who was the god over creation and literally the god over the dust of the earth. The fourth was a swarm of flies to mock the god Kepri, who is depicted with the head of a fly. The fifth was the death of Egyptian livestock, who was controlled by Hathor, who I had mentioned earlier, the goddess of protection, who had the head of a cow. Six was when boils and sores afflicted all the Egyptian people, uh, obviously going to the face of Isis, the god of medicine and healing. Seventh was hail fire, literally hail falling from the sky, and then whenever it hit ground, it would burst into flames. Uh, this was uh, attacking the god Newt, who is the goddess of the sky. Eighth was a plague of locusts showing dominion over the god Seth. And ninth went after one of the biggest gods of all, of, of all who I had mentioned earlier, where three days of darkness came upon Egypt, silencing the most well-known god at the time, the god Ra. So God did all of this to reveal and to all the witnesses that could see it, that he, the I am that I am, Yahweh, had dominion over all these little g gods that really just infected the Egyptian culture at the time. Now, these were not just to show Pharaoh and all the Egyptians the power of God, but also to remind the Israelites, the people of Yahweh, that the God of their forefathers was here to bring them home. Because as I hinted earlier, we talk about Joseph. He came in, there's about 60. 400 years later, there's about 2 million of them. I think we'd be lying to ourselves if we didn't think that all the Israelites at the time probably had taken to some of these gods. They had served under uh, certain Egyptians who probably might have even made them worship certain gods. But there was probably this aspect of, all right, I have to, I'm going to worship, you know, I know there's this God over here, Yahweh, but I'm going to, Ra is a pretty big deal. I see a lot of depictions of him around here. So we'd be lying to ourselves if these Egyptian gods, all these little G gods, hadn't stolen the heart of God's people and they had taken their eyes off of the one true God, the one who could really get them out of this mess. And I think it's, it can be kind of tough to comprehend, so I'm going to put it this way. A pastor put it really well. He says, the plagues on Egypt are as much about getting the Israelites out of Egypt as they were about getting Egypt out of the Israelites. So I'm going to say that again. The plagues on Egypt are as much about getting the Israelites out of Egypt as they are about getting Egypt out of the Israelites. So by taking a closer look at each plague, it reveals a surgical precision by God to go into the hearts of his people and to reveal the facade that the Egyptian culture and belief system had infected their hearts with. So for example, I have a dear family friend who about three years ago was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And if you've ever had friends or family members that have undergone cancer treatment, I think you'd agree with me in this. Cancer treatment is ruthless. Just the treatment of cancer. Because why? What is the goal of cancer treatment? It's to remove any and all signs of that cancer from your system. And let's be honest, it's ugly, it's painful, but that's the way that it has to be. You see, you can't 
beat around the bush with this. You can't be passive and allowing sin and idolatry within our own hearts to fester and to grow. And so that's why God, in this case, and I think with us too, with a ruthless precision, removes the cancer from our own hearts, and in this case, the hearts of his people. So repeat after me. God is in charge of everything. So the third thing that these plagues accomplish is to reveal the stubbornness of Pharaoh. Now, there's a truth in this that I don't want to just skim over. It would be easy to, but I think we need to address this. Because I think any critical reader of the Bible reads the words, God hardened. And they presume, how can this all-powerful, all-loving God allow this? Allow this to happen. So I'm going to try and do everything I can to summarize it. If you need any resources and you want to do a little bit more digging on your own, maybe this is something you've kind of wrestled with for a while, uh, come up to me afterwards. I'll be up front. Um, I'd encourage you to either read Romans 9 or there are a number of things that I looked at just to kind of get an understanding of this myself. But again, if we go into it with the understanding that God is in charge of everything, that means that God knows the hearts and the minds of everybody. So we look in Exodus 4, and we see that God had already warned Moses ahead of time, before he ever stepped foot back in Egypt, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And I think it's easy for us sometimes, especially with, with movies and TV shows, to either try to see the good in everybody, or sometimes with a lot of shows, even a lot of good shows, they depict the villain as the hero, kind of an anti-hero of sorts. And so I think it's, it's somewhat of our nature to try and try to apply that to certain characters, but I want to set something in place here. I want us to understand what's going on. This was a man who just a couple of chapters earlier okayed the mass genocide of Israelite babies by literally throwing them into the Nile on the, from the delivery room into the Nile. This was a man who in the face of impending death of the very people that he ruled allowed his own pride to get into the way, which resulted into the death of hundreds, if not thousands, of people. This man was evil. And God, being in control of everything, knew this. And he guided Moses through this man's manipulation and schemes to get the people out of there. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. And I want to show you a little bit of why this is so tricky. Why it's not just as easy as looking on the surface and presuming anything. So Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 27 and 28, I want to read something. This is Pharaoh, again, trying to understand this picture. It says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. I would say that that sounds like a pleading, repentant man. Does it not? Does it, do you hear that in pleading with Moses and Aaron? It almost sounds like the cry of a man who finally has hit rock bottom. A lot of the things that our stories might look like. Well, here's the issue. Once Moses gets rid of the storm, 
Let's go a couple verses later, starting in verse 34 and 35. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. What Pharaoh felt was the weight of the consequences of sin. And what worries me a little bit is that some of you guys might be out there feeling the same way. That maybe there have been some bad decisions that you've made or maybe out of pride or selfishness that, that you genuinely feel bad about. It might have hurt others and you genuinely feel bad about it. But my concern is that you might be more like Pharaoh. That you use church, maybe even church friends, almost like an ointment, maybe like, like a dose of antibiotics when you need it. When what you really need is that ruthless, precision attack on the heart idol that is the idol of yourself. Because you see, in these days, the Pharaoh was believed to be the direct descendant from the sun god Ra. So these attacks against Pharaoh were attacks against the greatest idol in all of Egypt, the god of self. That my needs are what's more important, that my desires are what need to be fulfilled, that it's my longings and my impulses that need to be satisfied. And unless we genuinely hand over our lives to God to, God, to control and to reign, then we will end up like Pharaoh, with hardened hearts on the wrong side of history. Which leads us to the final plague, the tenth plague. Now this one was so big, it got its own name. It's called the Passover. Now, the Passover is arguably the single most impactful moment within the Old Testament. It's the moment that God had promised to Abraham all the way back into Genesis 15, where he says in verses 13 and 14, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, talking about Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God fulfilled his promise. He told them that he was going to bring them in. They were going to be sojourners. And in this land they grew and they flourished. But it was time for God to get his kids out of there. And he's going to do that by giving us a picture of how he's also going to rescue us. We are called the new Israel. He's going to do that much later. So for now, turn to Exodus 11. Now let's just kind of walk through how this all goes down, because I think this is important enough to really take our time on it. So God lays down how this one's going to work. He tells Moses that this is going to be the final plague on Egypt, and that afterwards, everyone's going to be let free. But when they do it, that they're going to need to take everything that they can, and they're going to need to get out of there quick. He tells Moses, starting in verse 4, that when this night happens, that the firstborn of everything, of everything, of every family, rich or poor, of every animal and every livestock that night was going to die. He tells Moses that he will spare the firstborn of any family 
that faithfully follows a specific set of instructions and that by doing so, it will spare them from the judgment that was to come. So starting that in verse 3 of chapter 12, they were able to take and prepare a lamb, one for each family to be sacrificed. So starting in verse 5, the lamb had to have these characteristics. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it till the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Starting in verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses at which they eat it. So verses 8 through 11 talks about how they are to eat the lamb after using the blood on the doorposts and that they were to eat all of it that they could. And by eating it with unleavened bread and eating it fully dressed with sandals tied and belts strapped, signifying the haste that they were to get out of Egypt that night. So again, the question becomes, why? In verse 12, for I, the Lord, will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall, befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, at the time of this decree, judgment was coming on every person in Egypt, whether you were Hebrew, Egyptian, cattle, livestock, no one was safe from God's wrath this night. But you see, God gave his people an out. So to understand this a little bit, you have to understand that God being holy and perfect cannot be around sin. Literally, the word holy means to be set apart. But even in his holiness, God so loved his people, his very people, that he gave them a way to be reconciled and to be saved. And by doing that, it consisted, he gave them these directions. And those directions consisted of three things, three things that must be done. There's a pastor theologian named Vadi Bakken who came up with this, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. He says three things the instructions consisted of. A lamb must die, blood must be applied, and you must stay behind the door. So the first, a lamb must die. Now this is important. Don't miss this. God did not tell his people to live better or to pray harder. And then he'll come when they're ready. That's not what he says. He tells them to go and find a lamb. Why? Because there must be some kind of substitute for the sins of the people and the sins of that family. That at this moment in time, all of the people, even God's own people, who he acknowledged the Israelites are his people. But even in this moment, even God's own people had not done enough to earn their way around the impending judgment. It was not their identity as God's people alone that saved them. It was not their identity of being a good person or by growing up in a Christian home or being part of some youth group that saves them. 
And it's just as true now as it was then that the consequence of sin or of missing the mark is death. So when he decrees this, that means that there must be a death in every house to make up for the moral shortcomings of each person. But it was the people of God that have a way out, a substitute for the firstborn that in this case was the lamb. So the lamb must die. Second, blood must be applied. It was not enough that a lamb was just killed. The second thing was that blood must be applied. Acknowledging that a lamb died would not save you from the angel of death that night. The death of the lamb in and of itself was not enough. The saving power was found in the blood of that lamb. That you and your household would only be safe if you applied the blood from that perfect lamb onto the doorposts of your home. That nothing else would signify to the angel of death that you belong to the people of God unless you were protected by that precious blood of the lamb. So second, the blood must be applied. And third, and don't miss this one either, and third, you've got to stay behind the door. On this night, the night of Passover, the only safety in Egypt that night would be found behind the door that had been covered in the blood of the unblemished lamb. To go outside that night would be as if to say, I got this. I can do this on my own. I can save myself. I can talk my way out of this. I'm good enough. I'm not worthy of this. And by doing that, you acknowledge that you're not trusting by faith. No one is good. No, not one. But I want to be honest with you this morning. Moses tells his people to kill the lamb to apply the blood on the, door, on the doorposts with bundles of hyssop. Now, I have a picture of hyssop I wanted to share with you guys. This is what hyssop looks like. I want you guys, I want to put yourself in this story, in this moment. So by using this hyssop to apply the blood on the doorposts, it will be a sign for you to be passed over as long as you stay behind the bloodstained door. And this is, this is going to be tough for me to say. If this were me in this situation, I would take the biggest bundle of this stuff that I could find, and I would make sure that my doorposts are slathered with the blood of that lamb. But come midnight that night, I would be holding my son, weeping, praying, pleading, And hoping that God didn't take him or me. So I want you to repeat after me. God is in charge of everything. You see, Christian, whether you're mature or you're young in the faith, you know it's not easy to trust in God. You know it's difficult to put the things that you care about most out of your control. But if you place your hope in Christ, in the blood of the perfect, spotless lamb, you will be safe. 
But to any non-Christians, there's safety behind the door. There's safety with the blood of the lamb. Acknowledging that it happened will not be enough. The only thing that will save you is to stay behind the door. You see, this was not a good night in Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 and 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up that night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Repeat after me. God is in charge of everything. I told you it wasn't going to be easy. There's a great cry, a great wailing across the great country of Egypt for every firstborn, and get this, every firstborn, male or female, not just the babies, but the adults, young and old, all had been taken that night. But why? Kill the lamb, apply the blood, stay behind the door. God knew that it was going to take something drastic to get his people out of bondage that night. God knew that something big was going to be needed to save his people. And allow me to make the direct comparison to the why, because it took just as much to save you today. Kill the lamb, apply the blood, stay behind the door. You see, it was immediately after this that his people, God's people, were able to walk out of Egypt and experience a freedom that they had never experienced before. Freedom to finally worship God as he was meant to be worshipped. To enjoy life free in a way that they had never gotten to. And it was within this exodus or this leaving of Egypt that God tells them to remember this day. That from this point forward that they would eat a meal, a Passover meal. That the week of Passover, they would not eat bread with any kind of yeast. And that on the seventh day, they would have a feast to celebrate their escape from bondage into the land that God had promised them and to Abraham all those years ago. And even from there, they followed a pillar of smoke and fire that God had provided, even to the point where they were able to cross the Red Sea by God splitting it in two. For allowed to, again, two million Israelites to walk across this parted sea and then closing up behind them to make sure that they didn't go back in bondage. But you want to know what the best part of this story is? Is that it didn't end then. You see, there's a second Passover. A Passover with the same instructions that they gave to those Israelite families all those years ago. To kill the lamb, to apply the blood, and to stay behind the door. You see, we, like the Israelites, were in bondage. Not because of Egyptians, but because of our own sin. That we were slaves to our heart's desires. That we couldn't help but to pursue the things of the world. And that when we did, we felt empty. Just like a person in bondage, we were chasing after the wind. But yet God comes to us with a way to get out of that bondage. How? 
kill the lamb, apply the blood, stay behind the door. Jesus is our Passover lamb. You see, for us to be passed over, to be saved from the impending judgment, an atonement or a substitute must be made. In the story of Exodus, a spotless one-year-old lamb is that substitute. But for us, our lamb was much more spotless. Our substitute is much more blameless. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The lamb must be killed. But this fact is still the same then as it is now, that a lamb must be killed, but the saving power is in the blood. In Exodus 12, 23, Moses says that when God sees the blood, he will move on and not destroy. So the power is in the blood. And New Testament writers knew this. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or 1 John 1, 7, that says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus has been shed. It has been shed for you to apply it to yourself. Unbeliever, hear me. It does not matter how often you walk in those doors. It does not matter how many times you read your Bible. It does not matter how good of a person you are. If the blood is not applied, God will not pass over you. But here is the good news. The lamb has already been killed. The blood has been shed for you. He is waiting for you to apply it to the doorposts of your life, to no longer rely on your own merit, but to rely on the blood of Christ, the perfect lamb. But again, the third, stay behind the door. Christian, hear me, stay behind the door. Even Moses' words in Exodus 12, verse 22, he says, Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. So what does it mean? It means to trust, to trust in the Lord, that when you're scared and there's chaos it might not be actual wailing and crying of an entire nation, but maybe it's job issues, family problems, marriage is falling apart, kids are sick, finances are a wreck. When figurative wailing is all around you, stay strong and stay behind the door. Christian, look at me. Just like God had a plan for his people this night, he has a plan for you too. He gave his son for you so that you may trust in him when things all around you get tough. Trust in him. Stay behind his strength. Stay behind his atoning sacrificial work for you. Trust in him, not in yourself. There are countless stories of people in this room who stepped from behind that door, and if you trust in yourself, things are not going to end well. And so here in a moment, we're getting ready to receive communion. Now there's a special connection between communion and Passover. So if you turn your Bibles to Matthew 26, 
And starting in verse 17, we see Christ sitting at this feast, the, pa- the Passover feast that they used to remember this time. That, that Moses had set up thousands of years before this moment. And it was in this time of remembering that Jesus instructed the first communion. You see, Christ knew what was going to happen. He knew the significance of what this time meant for the Israelites. He also knew what it was going to mean for all Christians afterwards. He knew that the Passover merely foretold what was going to happen one day, that he, as the perfect lamb, that it would be his blood that would be shed so others can live. And it's this truth that we will get to celebrate here this morning together. So I want to read the words of Christ, who again, in saying this, the context, he's saying this in the context of remembering the Passover, what we had just talked about. So in Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, just poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Because of this, because of what Christ did, our Passover lamb, we can pass over from death to life. So one more time, repeat after me, God is in charge of everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for not only keeping your promise to Abraham and the Israelites, but for giving us the opportunity to be beneficiaries of that promise. God, we thank you for the blood of Christ, the perfect lamb who made a way for us to be passed over so that we can pass over from death to life in you. God, we ask for this reminder that we can stop relying on our own strength and willpower and start relying on the things that you have already done for us. When things are crazy all around us, that we can rely on you. God, help us to realize and remember these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.